Our reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew. We'll be reading in chapter 12, starting at verse 1 and reading through verse 14 and then moving along to verse 22 through verse 32. Uh, If you're using one of these Bibles from the back, that starts at the bottom right hand corner of page 816. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now down to verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. It is uh, my privilege to take us further in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like to think of it this morning as kind of taking a tour through the beautiful and somewhat fearful Rockies of Matthew chapter 12. We will see rock formations, snowy slopes, and glassy blue lakes of truth which should overwhelm our souls with joy and comfort and wonder. But we will also see 
what I would like to think of as narrow ledges and precipices that should cause holy fear and trepidation. According to the needs of our individual souls, may we be enabled by the Lord this morning to go away from this 12th chapter with a renewed caution and with refreshing encouragement. So let's just pause and ask the Lord's help for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this 12th chapter. We thank you mostly for our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would give us insight. We ask that where we need to be filled with a fresh sense of holy fear and caution, that we will feel that, that we will go out of here today determined to take some things more seriously than we've ever taken them before. And where we need encouragement and consolation and hope and joy and peace, may we also be able to leave with those emotions. We know they're not contrary to one another. So do help us. And Lord, just before we dive into this, we want to remember our dear brother Will Smith, who is this very moment in Japan on mission for you. And we pray that you will keep him healthy and safe and give him much guidance and direction as he spends this time exploring future mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I have examined and studied our text very carefully, it seems to me that this chapter can be naturally considered in four units. Each of them narrates an interaction between Jesus and his perpetual adversaries, the Pharisees. The dialogue is intense. The accusations of the Pharisees are sharp. The responses of Jesus are reasonable, measured, insightful, penetrating, bold, blunt, and at times downright fearful. One commentator begins his exposition with these words. Opposition to Jesus had already surfaced in Chapter 9.3, the scribes called Jesus a blasphemer. In 9.11, the Pharisees criticized him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. In 9.34, the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, which we've just heard he does in this chapter. In 10.25, Jesus warned his disciples, quote, If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? End quote. And in 1119, he quoted his enemies saying, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. The commentator goes on to say, Now it erupts over a concrete issue, namely the Sabbath. And it generates enough hatred to the Lord Jesus that his enemies literally contemplate murder. Now, because there are 50 verses in this chapter, and because I want to spend most of my time dealing with what I consider to be the weightier words of the Savior in this chapter, allow me to just touch upon and then dismiss some of the smaller sections. 
And I'd like to work backward in that regard for just a few moments. So I'm going to ask you just to turn quickly to the last several verses, verses 46 through 50, at the very end of the chapter. There, uh, Jesus was interrupted and told that his mother and his brothers were outside and they wanted to speak to him. And that's when he gave that sort of strange response that I'm sure is familiar to you. He, he looked at those to whom he was ministry, ministering and he said, Who are my, my mother and my brother? Those who do the will of my heavenly Father who obey him are my mother and my brother and my sister. And in so saying this, he taught us that the members of our families, if they are not converted or born again, are not our deepest and most intimate relationships. In fact, if they are, then they're especially our deepest and most intimate relationships. But when we live in homes where perhaps our parents are not converted, our spouse is not converted, our brother or our sister is not converted, our deepest and truest relationships are found in the household of faith in the family of God. And so I would encourage you, if you're in that situation, take full advantage of that opportunity to, to be blessed by that truer and inseparable love. Now then, very quickly, one other little section I'd like to dispatch so that we won't spend time on it. If you go back to verse 14, actually 14 is the end of a unit, but I, I want us to see what happened after Jesus offended them on his teaching concerning the Sabbath. It says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They literally wanted to kill him because of what he said about the Sabbath. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus, being aware from this, of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all, by the way, on the Sabbath, and he ordered them not to make him known. Have you ever wondered why several times in the Bible Jesus says to his followers, don't tell anyone, particularly those upon whom he performed a miracle, don't tell anyone that I did this to you? You've ever wondered about that? Why was that? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. One is that so many people wanted to make him a king immediately for the wrong reasons. They just wanted to be delivered from the Roman yoke, and Jesus had to avoid that. But there was also the potential of just complete disruption. Even here, these people want to murder him. Jesus isn't afraid to die. Jesus simply knows that he has more to do before it's time for him to die on the cross. And so this passage here, Matthew tells us, is consistent with who Jesus was and why he withdrew. And I'd only draw your attention to verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Well, I'll read verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench. Pastor Keith quoted that, actually, this morning. That's our beautiful, loving, tender, and yet sovereign Savior, who is going to be the victor, according to verse 20, and in his name the Gentiles will place their hope. So, having done that, now let's just look at three major units that are here. 
And uh, the first one is found in verses 1 through 14. Tim read those for us. I want us to see that even it breaks down into two incidents. The first incident was uh, his disciples shucking a little corn or perhaps picking a little wheat and rubbing it in their hands. Luke tells us that they rubbed it in their hands so that they could get to the kernel. And the Pharisees were very, very provoked about that. The second incident comes in verses 9 and following where Jesus willfully healed someone on the Sabbath. So those are the two incidences. And we want to look at them for a moment or two and, and to see what it was that troubled the disciple or the Pharisees and how Jesus responded to them. Uh, they said to him, look at your disciples. Look what they're doing. They're breaking the Sabbath. In fact, they weren't breaking the Sabbath because they weren't laboring in their vocation. They were simply expending some energy which it takes to walk from the bedroom to the kitchen or to the bathroom to pick a fork up and put some food in your mouth. The Old Testament never said that one could not walk by his neighbor's field. In fact, the Old Testament told farmers to be sure that you don't reap around the perimeter of your field so that the poor and the needy and the hungry can avail themselves of some food that they might not otherwise have. The Bible never said you can't do that on the Sabbath. But that's part of the problem of Phariseeism, which I will comment on again. The tendency to take good and legitimate laws and then conclude 15 or 20 or maybe a 100 ways to apply them and to go beyond what God himself ever said. So Jesus says, look, do you guys remember your Old Testament? Let's go back and think about David for a minute. What did David do? It's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. He was, he was fleeing as a, a refugee, and he came to Nob, and he went to the temple, and Ahimelech was there, and he said, Do you have any food? We're starved. We're hungry. And Ahimelech said, Well, there's the bread of the presence, the, what we sometimes call the show bread. That's available. You, you may eat that. And so they ate that. That was an extraordinary exception because no one was to eat that but the priests. But the Bible nowhere condemns that. Nor does Jesus condemn that. Nor did the Pharisees condemn that. You never heard the Pharisees talking about what David did. Oh no, David was their greatest king. And a greater than David was doing something in our passage. The son of David, the Messiah, wasn't even breaking the laws. And then he gives the second illustration of what the temple priests were doing. And you find that in verse 5. Again, Tim read that for us. You know what they were doing? They were expending energy. They were working. They were doing their vocation. But they had to. Why didn't the Pharisees complain about that? Our priests in the past and even in the present shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. There were several things they had to do on the Sabbath. 
Among them was baking bread and replacing it every week. But there were sacrifices they had to offer. They worked on the Sabbath, just like pastors perhaps find Sunday the hardest, most uh, exhausting day of their weekly ministry. But the Pharisees were never troubled about that. And Jesus wants to expose them and show them how inconsistent they were. They never spoke a critical word about either David or the priest. What's the point? The point is that for all except legalists, there are sometimes exceptions to the rules. For everyone who is not a legalist, there are sometimes exceptions to the rules. You know why? Because a larger principle sometimes takes precedence. And that's what was going on, for example, when David went in there. There was a need to show compassion to the the heir to the throne. That's what's going on in the temple when the priests are sacrificing. There is a need to offer that sacrifice which is symbolic of the coming Redeemer. God commanded it. And so in that case, and in Particularly in that case, the temple trumped. I don't really like to use the word trumped anymore. (laughs) The temple trumped the Sabbath law. You know why? Because it was more important. Because it symbolized a coming Savior who would provide real Sabbath. Real and final rest. And so it was appropriate. And Jesus simply draws that to their attention. Now, here's what I want you to see, is that he makes three assertions, and they're not going to be hard to discover because they're right in a row. It's bang, bang, bang. His first assertion is found in uh, verse 6. He says, I tell you, Something is greater than the temple here. Something greater than the temple is here. Now, maybe your translation says someone. It shouldn't because it's in the neuter. It's something. What is the thing that is greater than the temple? Well, it is a person plus something. The person is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David. But it is Jesus, the Messiah. It is Jesus who establishes, who has come to establish and inaugurate his kingdom. In fact, if we could just look over for one second over to um, verse 28, I know we're jumping ahead, but Jesus is explaining who he is. And he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He acknowledged the presence of the kingdom because he was the king. And so when he's talking to these Pharisees, he's saying, assertion number one, There's something greater here than the temple. 
And I'm sure that was a mystery to them, but I hope it will be no mystery to any of us by the time this message is over, or in fact, even within the next few moments. Jesus is the temple. He said so. He spoke of his own body as the temple. And our only access to God is in and through him. And Revelation 21 portrays for us what it will be like on the renewed earth. And it distinctly says there will be no temple, for the temple is God and the Lamb. Jesus is the temple. Of course he's greater than the temple. Because the temple was symbolic of his eventual appearance. And all the blessings that would flow from a Savior who died to make access into the Holy of Holies for those who believe upon him. So that's the thing. That's the thing that is better than the temple. Then he asserts, secondly, immediately on the heels of that, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Actually, I'm sorry. That's the third thing. Before he does that, he says to his hearers, if you'd only known what Hosea 6, 6 meant. In Luke's account of this, Luke's puts it this way, Jesus said, go and learn what Hosea 6, 6 means. Go and learn that. The way it's put in Matthew's gospel is that if you only understood Hosea 6, 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So what is Hosea 6, 6? He quotes it for us. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So that's the second assertion. The first assertion is something greater than the temple is here. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that this was God's concern throughout the Old Testament. And if you will, just allow me to read very quickly and very briefly three passages. One of them is our Hosea passage. Listen to what's said and watch it as I read in Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, that would be to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to your Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Justin read about this this morning. Bring justice 
to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Was God against all those things really? And technically, no. He was against putting them before compassion, before obedience. And so Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, or as Jesus puts it in our text, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And finally, there is the Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Brothers and sisters, this has always been God's primary concern. It's not like in the Old Testament he preferred sacrifice, and by the time we get to the New Testament he preferred love. He always preferred mercy over sacrifice. And then we come to the third assertion. So you see them, something greater than the temple is here. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And then the one that I mentioned prematurely a moment ago, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's simply asserting his sovereignty over it. He has exclusive rights to alter, to interpret, and to apply it. Because, as I already said, he's the fulfillment of it. He is the one who has rescued our rest by purchasing it. And I'm going to say more about that in just a few moments. So those are the three assertions. Very troubling. Actually, there's a fourth one. It's found in Mark's account where he says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. But we'll let that one go for now. There are at least three right in our text. And then I just want to quickly touch on this next little section, uh, 9 through 13. I won't spend nearly as much time. What we have here is Jesus himself working on the Sabbath by performing a miracle. And the Pharisees throw down the gauntlet with the question, is it lawful to do that kind of thing on the Sabbath? And actually in Luke, it's interesting, it says that Jesus asked them. And it's not really a contradiction. You put the two things together. Either he was anticipating their question before they actually articulated it, and they're sitting there saying, wow, how do you know what we're thinking? Or they asked that question, he said, well, let me ask you a question. Before I answer. And in Luke, it says this. He puts them on the horns of a dilemma. He gives them a catch-22. He says, okay, here's my question to you. On the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or harm? Is it lawful to heal or to destroy? How would you like those dilemmas? (laughs) They didn't, that puts them in a problem. It doesn't put us in a problem, I hope. But it puts the Pharisees in a, in a great dilemma. And then he reasons with them just out of their own natural sense of compassion. He says, when any of you has a sheep who falls in a pit, do you not on the Sabbath graciously and compassionately pull your sheep out of the pit? 
And is not a human being of more value than a sheep? You wonder why he didn't throw in the words, you hypocrites, right there, as he did on other occasions. How inconsistent. You love your animals more than you love your fellow human being. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And so he puts them in a very difficult position and he really undoes their argument. And then he adds a fourth, what I'm going to call regulative principle. That's good language. We believe in regulative principles. God regulates some things. And we've seen three of them. And now the fourth one is what he says toward the end of it. He said, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's in verse 12. So this is a helpful regulative principle for those of us who care about pleasing our Savior and doing His will and wondering Is this good or not? Jesus is saying anything that is truly, genuinely good, you are permitted to do on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never designed to keep people from doing good. So what I'd like to do is pause for just one more moment and do what I'm going to call a small, big picture biblical theology on Sabbath. Really, really small. And I'm just going to make seven statements. Number one, we're going back to the concept of Sabbath here for a minute, okay? When did it begin? Well, those of you who know your Bibles know it began in Genesis 2-2. God, after he finished creation on the sixth day, rested and blessed the Sabbath, sanctified it, solemnized it. And he entered into his rest, not in activity. Jesus said, God is working and so am I. But in terms of being the creator, he entered into his rest and Adam and Eve enjoyed that rest because they were in a right relationship with him, their creator. And he walked with them in the cool of the evening. But what happened? That rest was lost. It was forfeited. And so God reiterates the Sabbath principle for the nation of Israel after he redeems them out of Egypt. And he reminds them to commemorate creation. But in Deuteronomy 5, he actually tells them that they should keep the Sabbath because he redeemed them out of Egypt. And it takes on a redemptive sense that it didn't have before. And so the Israelites who had made it out of Egypt were actually enjoying what we sometimes call an already and not yet. There are lots of already's and not yet's in the Christian life. Are you saved? Yes. Are you completely saved? No. It's an already, not yet. There are, you know, 20, 30, or maybe a 100 of Already but not yet. Israel would have been delivered out of Egypt and they were, they were free from the bondage and they rested from the oppression. But there was another rest. There was a promised land and they wandered in the wilderness and because of unbelief, most of the Israelites, only those 20 and under, made it into that not yet rest. 
But most of the nation forfeited that rest. And even those who made it really didn't make it well because there was still so much unbelief in the nation of Israel. But God is working and salvation is unfolding. And he knows that our ability to re-enter the rest that Adam and Eve enjoyed is going to have to be purchased. And so the whole sacrificial system points to a coming Savior who gives us rest. And we enter into that rest, how? By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Look at the last two verses of chapter 11. They're not there accidentally just before this section on the Sabbath. He says to his hearers, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus presented himself to his hearers as the ultimate rest. Well, at least the ultimate already rest. You see, you're getting too complicated now. I don't think I'm following you, okay? If you're trusting in Jesus right now this morning to pay for your sins and to make you righteous before God, you're resting upon Him. You have peace in your heart. You have a sense of, I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to work for it. I have a Savior. But you just failed. Of course you just failed. That's why you're trusting Him. I rest in Him who forgives me every day a hundred times, a thousand times. I rest in Jesus. Is it a perfect and final rest? No, it's not. There's a not yet for me. In this life, we labor and for survival, for one thing, and we have to go to work. And we war against the world and the flesh and the devil while we rest in Christ. And how long do we do that? Until we enter our final rest. And that's what makes the Lord's Day so precious to us because... Like it or not, we live, and so does every other human being on the face of the world, in a seven-day week. And for the most part, we work most of that, and even for the ungodly, weekends used to be made for Michelob, but they're certainly made for rest, and that's when pagans head for the beach or wherever, and Christians while they enjoy vacations to the glory of God, really look forward to the Lord's Day, which is a symbol of our future gathering with the whole people of God in all of the diversity to worship with no sin our great Redeemer. And so that rest is real now, but it's a rest that's not final. Have any of you entered your final rest? you really feel like you've entered your final rest? I don't. I can't wait for it. And we look at what's happening in this world. We long for the day when, when we enter into God's rest the way Adam and Eve enjoyed God's rest before they fell. That rest was forfeited, dear brothers and sisters. It was forfeited, and it's only partially restored now through the Lord Jesus Christ, but someday it will be fully restored. And that's what Hebrews 4 is all about. The Israelites forfeited the rest of Canaan because of unbelief, and he exhorts all of the readers not to succumb to unbelief. And he says, for those who believe, there is a sabbatismos, there is a rest. It's very clear that that's an eschatological rest. 
So do we rest now or do we rest later? The answer is yes. It is an already and it is a not yet. So that's the, that's the little big picture theology of Sabbath. And the last thing I'm saying, and then we're going to hurry through these last two sections. Last thing I want to say is that I hope you can uh, understand then that what happened was <clears throat> the priests were, as temple workers, trumping the Sabbath. The sacrifice and work to portray coming redemption needed to be done in spite of the command that you shall do no labor because that was more important. The temple trumps the Sabbath, but guess what? Jesus trumps the temple. That's what he said. He said there's something greater here than the temple. And so he is the temple He is the ultimate Sabbath, which will take us to our final Sabbath. Well, that's just some thoughts. I know it raises lots and lots of questions, but, you know, it makes the Lord's Day, for me, a beautiful and wonderful day. And I'm not in the bondage of Old Covenant Israel, and neither are you. He did alter the Sabbath. You had to be executed for picking up sticks. Anybody think that's still valid? Jesus set us free to do good and to worship and to fellowship and to rejoice and to evangelize and to do mission. He set us free for all that. So this day should be thoroughly enjoyed with true worship, foretaste of the eternal state, celebration, fellowship, service, mission, rest, refreshment, visiting our neighbors, meeting with friends, spending focused time with our children, visiting the poor, visiting the underprivileged, underprivileged, feeding the hungry, going to find the lonely widows, visiting residents in nursing homes, making those visits to the hospital, mingling with the lost down at Smothers Park on Sunday. I've got a heart for that. I think some of you do. We talked about that. Go down there on Sunday afternoon, somewhere around 4 or 5 o'clock. Have some of those beautiful gospel tracts we recently provided for all of you. Interact with people. Talk to them. Say, hey, I'd like to give you something that's really been a blessing to me. Sounds like a pretty good way to keep the Lord's Day to me. So if you want to think of it as the Christian Sabbath, you're welcome to think of it that way. Interestingly, the word Sabbath is used 62 times in the New Testament And 61 of the times it refers to the seventh day, and only one time it refers to the eternal Sabbath. Nowhere in the New Testament is the Lord's Day called the Sabbath. Am I hung up on that? No. You can call it the Sabbath if you... Because it is a Christian rest. But what I'm saying is, that's what we should be hung up on. It's the great privilege of resting in and rejoicing in our Savior who purchased that for us and restored it for us. Two times in the New Testament we read the first day of the week and one time in the New Testament we read the Lord's Day. That's in Revelation. All of the other usages of the Sabbath are for the seventh day of the week. But I'm telling you, I want to be very clear about this. Christ is my Sabbath and I rest in Him and I love the Lord's Day because it is, as I said, a prefiguration of what we're going to do when we enter our final 
rest. And what a great day to, to enjoy for the glory of God and His service. Now we have to go 120 miles an hour. So we got the second unit. It's verses 22 through 36. Tim read those for us. And since I've touched on it, I maybe don't need to say as much as I really would like to say, but you, you know what he did. Now, this wasn't on the Sabbath, by the way, and this wasn't in a synagogue. They brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. It's interesting how often disease and sickness are joined in the New Testament with demon possession. And Jesus healed him. He healed him, and he could suddenly see, and he could suddenly speak. And people were amazed. And according to verse 23, many people wondered, is this the Messiah? This is, this is a question of hope. Can this be the son of David? Is this possibly the Messiah? Perhaps it is. That was the spirit. And my question to you would be, How do you think that question went over with the Pharisees? Look at the next verse. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. And they just have to grasp for some kind of way to discredit our Savior and blame it on the devil. And say, well, he's doing it somehow by satanic power. And Jesus says, that's pretty logical. So Satan's divided with Satan. Satan's defeating his own kingdom. What kind of a kingdom divided against itself can stand? He shows the fallacy of their logic. That's embarrassing. And then he asks, asks them the question, and by whom do your Children cast out demons if they actually did. That's a dilemma, because if they did it by God, then they're their judges. If they did it by the devil, then it's the same thing they're accusing him of. He just keeps binding them up in, in some argument and truth that they cannot escape from. He says, in essence, no, let me explain to you what's really happening. And it's in verse 28. What's really going on here is that I am asserting... My kingdom power. If I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he says, it's like this. You can't rob a strong man's house unless you go in and bind him. In another gospel, it says, unless a stronger than he binds him. Well, you and I know who's stronger than the devil. Infinitely stronger, because the devil does not have omnipotence or omniscience or omnipresence. But our Savior does. And He's stronger than that. It's another one of the greaters. There's several greaters going on in here. And so He says, this is what's happening. I'm establishing my kingdom. I'm showing my sovereignty not only over the Sabbath, and but also over Satan. And I'm in the process of binding Him. And we know that the death blow came when Jesus died on the cross. So He just decimates their arguments. And he gives them the true explanation of what's going on. He also tells us that we can't be neutral. That's in verse 30. Whoever's not with me is against me. He warns them about the terrible, hopeless end of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in verses 31 and 32. Maybe that passage puzzles you. 
And if you have further questions, any of us would be happy to explain more fully what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. But it's a willful attributing to the devil what you know really belongs to God. It's a hatred. It's a, it's a malicious. It's a determined hatred of God. And according to our Savior... It's an unforgivable sin. It is. It's an unpardonable sin. What also puzzles people is why Jesus would say you can blaspheme against the Son, but you can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I used to puzzle about that. That didn't make sense to me. But the answer to that is this, that it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to believe upon the Son as our Savior. If you spurn Him and do disdain to Him and forfeit His ministry in your life, you can never get to Christ. So he's so critical. He's such a critical agent in our conversion. And I would just ask those of you who are sitting here this morning, are you born again? Have you been converted? That's There's no neutrality there. You either are or you aren't. The new birth is not gradual. The new birth is instantaneous. A changed life is gradual. Have you been born again? Jesus said if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You'll never see your need of a Savior. Whatever you do, dear friend, if you're unconverted, don't attribute to the devil what down in the depths of your heart you know to be a work of God because you may commit the unpardonable sin. Now, people who fear they've committed the unpardonable sin give give evidence thereby that they haven't. So I'll fill that out with you on a one-to-one basis. And finally, he ends with a cause-and-effect relationship between our hearts and our mouths. And he simply says that your mouth is going to be very revelatory. It's going to show what's in your heart. What, what it's, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And that's where he calls them a brood of vipers. That's why I said at the outset, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. And he basically tells them they're going to hell. The last section I can't do justice to, but there's where they're asking in the third unit, in verse 38, hey, we will, it's kind of like this. Jesus, we're real close to believing upon you, but you know what we need? We just need a little more evidence that you're really the Son of God, that you're really, just a little more. No. Your unbelief is willful. If you need more evidence, your problem is willful unbelief. And so Jesus dismantles that. And by the way, if you see in verse um, 41, he says something is greater, greater than Jonah is here. And in verse 42, he says something greater than Solomon is here. So three times in our chapter, he says something greater than is here. Something greater than the temple, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon. The temple represented the priesthood. Jonah represents the prophets. Solomon represents the kings. Jesus is the consummate prophet, priest, and king. He's greater than them all. And Jesus says, in the day of judgment, it's going to be really sad for you guys. And guess what? It's going to be really sad for people in Owensboro and western Kentucky or southern Indiana if they willfully refuse to trust in Christ in the midst of light and evidence and knowledge. It's going to be horrible because none of us are going to rise up and say, we, pre- we, we repented under the preaching of Jonah. And the queen of the south is going to say, I saw the wisdom of God through Solomon. What are we going to say? 
And so it's a fearful passage. Again, he basically tells them they're going to hell. But just before he finishes his message, he says, don't try to fix yourself. Self-reformation will only make you worse. It's going to be like the demon who leaves a house and it's all the house is all cleaned up, it's looking really good. And then the demon gets seven other friends and comes back and it says the state of that man, Jesus is talking about people, not really houses. The state of that person is worse off at the end, worse off than it was at the beginning. Don't try to fix your life up and self-reform. That's part of our pharisaical tendency. We are judgmental of people. People who are not as strict as we are surely are, are displeasing to God. May God, I don't think our church is terribly pharisaical, so that's a word of encouragement. But you know what? I have a Pharisee in me. I have to kill him every day of my life. I want to look down on people. I want to be mad at people. I want to feel like they're inferior to me. And the list goes on and on and on. Heritage Baptist Church must not be a Pharisaical church because our Savior and our God prefers mercy over sacrifice. We need to be a loving people. But it starts by recognizing that we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves, but God can through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. We know that we haven't done any justice to it. It's, it's, it feels to me terrible, terrible. But it's a wonderful passage, and we pray that, that all of us will go home and read it study it, meditate upon it, and see how great our Savior is. And may, may we be real people. May we be compassionate people. We, may we know how to spend a Lord's Day with liberty and joy and service for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.